Shalom, this is Reverend John Ferrett, and we are in the Gospel According to Moses in the book of Exodus, lesson number 40. From lessons number 7 through 39, and 39 had three parts to it, our focus has been on God's promise in Exodus chapter 3, verse 8. Reading from the New American Standard, it says, So I've come down to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians. Now God is speaking to Moses. This is at the burning bush. He goes on and he says, And to bring them up from the land to a good and spacious land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Amorite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite. But right there, right at the beginning of verse 8, it says, I've come down to deliver them, and then I'm going to take them to a spacious land. And now we're in lesson 40. We're at the shore of Yom Suf, the Sea of Reeds. The first part of God's promise in Exodus 3, verse 8, has been fulfilled. Wow! It took us oh, near 40 sessions podcast to study this in detail. Israel is delivered and redeemed through the first redeemer, Moses, by the mighty hand of Adonai, by the mighty hand of the Lord. Adonai, Lord, if you recall, is a cover word because in the ancient Hebrew, in the original Hebrew, is the original name of God, yud Hey vav Hey, that I pronounce Yahweh, others pronounce it maybe in a different way. Indeed, Yahweh, Ha'el Hayakid, the only God. So their journey now to the promised land is about to begin, but all of a sudden we stop and we come to chapter 15. And we take a look at chapter 15. We read, Az Yashir Moshe, Uvene Israel Hashira. Then Moses and the children of Israel sang this song. So let's read it in Exodus chapter 15. Then Moses and the sons of Israel sang this song to the Lord and said, I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and its rider he has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He's become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will extol him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army is cast into the sea, and the choicest of his officers are drowned in the Red Sea. The deeps cover them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, is majestic in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. And in the greatness of your excellence, you overthrow those who rise up against you. You send forth your burning anger, and it consumes them as chaff. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters were piled up. The flowing waters stood up like a heap. The deeps were congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall be glorified against them. I will draw out my sword. My hand will destroy them. You blew with your wind, the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the, in, the, in the mighty waters. Who is like you among the gods, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in praises, working wonders?
You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. In your loving kindness, you have led the people whom you have redeemed. In your strength, you have guided them to your holy habitation. The peoples have heard and they tremble. Anguish has gripped the inhabitants of Philistia. Then the chiefs of Edom were dismayed. The leaders of Moab, trembling, grips them. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them. By the greatness of your arm, they are motionless as stone. Until your people pass over, O Lord. Until the people pass over whom you have purchased. You will bring them and plant them in the mountain of your inheritance. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your dwelling. The sanctuary, O Lord which your hands have established. The Lord shall reign forever and ever. So some say that this song by the sea is also the song of Moses. You read that in Revelation 15, verses 1, 2, and 3. We won't read that, but if you go to Revelation 15, verses 1 through 3, you talk about the victorious who are standing by the sea. Just like the victorious Israelites were standing by the sea. So it surely connects to the song of the sea. All Israel is by the shore. Egypt is defeated. The wrath of God is completed, as specified in Revelation 15, verse 1. We can say that now. The wrath of God against Egypt is completed. Egypt is totally destroyed. So for me, I can surely agree that the Song of the Sea could be the Song of Moses as specified in Revelation 15, verse 3. But is there an alternative? I want to suggest to you there's a strong alternative. Deuteronomy 32 verses 1 through 43. Now, we're not going to study it in detail now. We're not, we're not going there. We'll study that more in depth once we get to the book of Deuteronomy and get to chapter 32. But I just want you to consider some sources from Judaism. This is really fascinating. Dr. Joseph Hertz, a brilliant Torah scholar, a brilliant Torah teacher. He was the head rabbi in England in the early 20th century, and he is considered one of the leading scholars in Judaism. And he has commentary with regards to Deuteronomy 32, 1 through 44, and he calls it the Song of Moses. Joseph Hertz this brilliant Jewish scholar calls it the Song of Moses. He goes on to say that Moses began his ministry at the Red Sea with the song of praise and triumph. That's what we're reading now in Exodus chapter 15. Dr. Hertz goes on and he says, and he ends his life to service to God and Israel with another hymn of joy on the banks of the Jordan. And that's Deuteronomy 32. And in view of the promised possession, both songs are an anticipation of the glorious future beyond the wilderness life. He goes on to say, but let not the heathen exult and say that Israel lies helpless and crushed. God would in the end intervene for Israel 
and the lawgiver calls upon the nations to rejoice in the salvation of the people of God. Now, Dr. Hertz would agree that this is going to happen in the end times. This is going to happen in the Messianic age when the Messiah comes. Because Messiah is the one, the great king, the, great, the warrior prince who comes and defeats the enemies of the God of Israel. Interesting in the sense that he's using the phrase, the song of Moses. That's not in the Bible anywhere except in the book of Revelation, verse 3. Dr. Hertz then comments on verses 40 through 42. And I read, For I lift my hand to heaven, and I say, As I live forever, if I wet my glittering sword and my hand takes, takes hold on judgment, I will render vengeance to mine adversaries, and will recompense them, them that hate me. And I will make mine arrows drunk with blood, and my sword shall devour flesh with the blood of the slain and the captives from the long-haired heads of the enemy. Now, this is fascinating. This is the end times. God is saying, I'm going to take my sword and I'm going to defeat my enemies. Revelation 19, verse 15. Messiah has the sword. Jesus has the sword. It says it specifically. And he strikes down all the nations. He strikes down all those who are coming against Israel. Messiah, with his sword, brings down the wrath of God. So we can see that indeed Deuteronomy 32 is really a strong candidate for being the Song of Moses. And here's Dr. Joseph Hertz actually calling that. Another great rabbi who's called Rashi, and actually Rashi is just an acronym for his whole name. Rashi's actual name is Rabbi Shlomo ben Yitzach, Rabbi Solomon, the son of Isaac, and he was a rabbi in the early 11th century AD. And he comments on verse 43 of Deuteronomy 32. Verse 43 says, Sing, sing praises, O nations, for his people, for the blood of his servants he will avenge, and retribution will he bring upon his foes, and he will placate his land, the land of his people. So Rashi is talking about that the nations should be singing praises, singing praises for Israel. Because as Rashi says, when the final redemption comes and the world sees that Israel restored to its glory and its enemies are pushed, punished for what they did to it, the nations of the world will recognize Israel's greatness and praise it as God's people. The final redemption again. This is about Messiah. This is about Messiah as the warrior king. This is so clear. We can see this prophecy in Zechariah chapter 2, verses 9 through 13. Zechariah chapter 2, verses 9 through 13. For behold, I will wave my hand over them, so that they will be plunder for their slaves. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. Isn't it interesting? The Lord, Yahweh of hosts, has sent me. There's two beings here. 
the Lord of hosts, and me. And this one who's called me is the one who continues on here. Sing for joy and be glad, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I am coming, me. I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. Many nations will join themselves to the Lord in that day and will become my people. Then I will dwell in their midst, and you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. It's interesting. We have two, two person, persons, persons, two characters here, the me and the Lord. The Lord will possess Judah as his portion in the Holy Land and will again choose Jerusalem. Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord, for he has for he is aroused from his holy habitation. So indeed, here we have Rashi talking about this song in Deuteronomy 32, and it's, and it's related again to the end times when Israel will be restored and the enemies of God will finally be defeated. And then we go to a Christian scholar. The Christian scholar is John Kareed. You've heard me talk to, uh, about him before. A brilliant Egyptologist, archaeologist, and a great and a great theologian. And right there in his commentary on the book of Deuteronomy, he calls it the Song of Moses. Why? Kareed understands that in Judaism, Deuteronomy 32 is called the Song of Moses. Isn't this interesting? The entire Bible does not use the phrase the Song of Moses at all, every anywhere, except by John, who's writing Revelation, who's a Jew, a devout Jew, and in Judaism, Deuteronomy 32 is referred to as the Song of Moses. So the Song of Moses is in Jewish literature. And John is calling it the Song of Moses. This is why Kareed says this has got to be the Song of Moses. Dr. Kareed goes on and he says, This song, Deuteronomy 32, ends with a triumphant benediction. It is an exhortation in which the opening line is an imperative that summons the nations of the world to praise Israel. Then Moses highlights the major contrast that has been central to the song. That is... The contrast between how God will deal with people who belong to him and the people that do not. Yahweh will make atonement for his people, a cleansing of impurity and guilt. The ones who defy Yahweh, on the other hand, will receive vengeance and their just rewards. Now implicit in this benediction is the understanding that those who turn to Yahweh and become part of his people will be delivered from the wrath to come. Thus... The song in Deuteronomy 32 concludes on an evangelical note. And this is related to us. You guys, we've been grafted in as we read in Romans 11. We've become joint heirs. Joint heirs with Israel. In podcast number 25, in the Gospel According to Moses, Genesis, podcast 25, I talk about verse 3 in Genesis 12 where God says to Abraham, and through your seed, Abraham, all of the families of the earth will be blessed. If you go to podcast number 25 of Genesis, you'll see that an alternative, an equivalent alternative 
translation of that verse is, and all the nations or the families of the earth will be grafted in. It's amazing. You gotta, I'm not going to reteach it again. You have to go to podcast 25 of Genesis. So Christians and Messianic Jews, all of us, we're going to experience the end of days. And since we're grafted in, it's as if Song of Moses, Deuteronomy 32, is for us as well. There's a many messianic source that I hold up highly, and that is Dr. Not Dr., but Reverend Dan Lancaster. He's a messianic uh, Gentile who leads a messianic congregation. He's a brilliant teacher. He really knows his stuff and a scholar. He says the Song of Moses has to be Deuteronomy 32. But he makes a statement that is so awesome. And he says, in the Greek, if you're reading Revelation 15, verse 3, you can read it in the Greek in a different way. In other words, you could read it this way. Sing the song that Moses sang. And in Deuteronomy 32, especially at the end of the song, we find that Moses and Joshua sang this together to all Israel. Sing the song that Moses sang, which is the song also that will be sung by the Lamb. And it said, whoa! The song of Moses is the song that will be sung by the Lamb? Not two songs, but one. Now, I checked the Greek, and it sounds very plausible. And this is so cool. The Messianic scholar says all of this makes sense. In his own words, he says, The book of Revelation draws much of its apocalyptic imagery and energy from the Song of Moses. Like the Song of Moses, the book of Revelation is primarily concerned with the coming time of God's wrath upon the earth. Though Israel is punished for her misdeeds, the Song of Moses ends triumphantly, describing the time of vengeance when God's people will be ultimately be redeemed and vindicated. The book of Revelation speaks of the apocalyptic future, during which God directly intervenes in human events and unleashes his vengeance on the ungodly nations that have martyred his people. In the book of Revelation, as God's wrath is poured out upon the earth, the writer reports a vision of the martyred standing before the throne of God, singing the Song of Moses, the bondservant of God, and the Song of the Lamb. So, is the Song of Moses, Deuteronomy 32, verses 1 through 44? Or is the Song of Moses the one that we're studying right now in Exodus chapter 15? So it look like, looks like we're in the midst of a very interesting difference of opinion. I can see the arguments for both. But for me, Revelation deals with the final redemption at the end of days. And so does Deuteronomy 32. The final wrath. The final redemption. And on top of that, John uses a phrase, the Song of Moses, which is only used in Jewish literature, because in Judaism, the Song of Moses is Deuteronomy 32. So for me, 
it makes sense to me that Deuteronomy 32 is the song. So as we've read, we're in Exodus 15. And there's something very interesting that we need to take a look at in verse 1. Verse 1 we read, Then Moses and the sons of Israel sang the song to the Lord and said, I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and its rider he has hurled into the sea. The question is, did Pharaoh die in the sea with his army? Take a look also at uh, 15 verse 4. Pharaoh's chariots and his army is cast into the sea, and the choices of his officers are drowned in the Red Sea. Or take a look at verse 19. They're all related to this. Now there's many that say, yes, of course, Pharaoh died in the Red Sea at this time. And they might use Psalm 136, verse 15. Now I'm not going to read that. You can go check it out for yourself. But the Message Bible in Psalm 136, verse 15 says that Pharaoh was dumped along with his army. Both were, were dumped into the sea. That's exactly what the Message Bible does. It uses the word dumped. The NIV uses swept. That God swept Pharaoh and his army into the sea. In other words, both were swept. So you got the Message Bible in the NIV really implying that Pharaoh died in the sea. But that's not what this Hebrew, that the Hebrew says. In Psalm 136, verse 15, it says, Ve'nier paro, ve'kelo ve'amsuf. The Hebrew word there is na'ar. Strong's numbers H5287. And again, I'm not going to Strong's Concordance. A concordance does not give you the meaning of a Hebrew word. We need to go to Gesenius. Gesenius is a Hebrew lexicon, one that is used in graduate schools across the world. Gesenius talks about the fact that na'ar basically means to shake off. Do you see the picture? That's the conceptual idea. God shook off Pharaoh and his army like bothersome pests. Now, shaking off Pharaoh and his army doesn't mean that Pharaoh and his army both need to be killed. So you go to Exodus 14, verse 27. The same verb is used there, na'ar, and Pharaoh's not even mentioned. The army is the one that's dusted off, shaken away. God can be honored through Moses and his army. God, God will be honored through Pharaoh and his army, but Pharaoh doesn't need to die for God to be honored. Now others, they're going to refer to Psalm 106, verse 11. And when you read that, the waters covered their adversaries. Not one of them was left, and the enemy was destroyed. But, since... Lesson 7 in this series, we have shown unequivocally from an archaeological historical basis and a biblical, a biblical dating basis, Amenhotep II in the 18th dynasty of Egypt was the Pharaoh of the Exodus. 1446 
is when Moses led the children of Israel out of Egypt. The interesting thing is, Amenhotep II didn't die. He reigned for another 26 more years. If Pharaoh also died, which the Bible does not say he did, but if Pharaoh died, it would contradict truth. And the facts of real history and real archaeology. I, I remember a movie, maybe some of you do as well, called A Few Good Men. And in there, there's a famous trial scene. And Jack Nicholson is a high-ranking Marine uh, officer. He's being cross-examined by Tom Cruise, who's the uh, snotty, uh, thinks he's everything, uh, Navy lawyer. And so during the cross-examination, Nicholson's looking at Tom Cruise and basically says, well, what do you really want? And Tom Cruise is really into this and through a passionate way says, I want the truth. And Nicholson turns to him and says, in a, in a passionate way, you can't handle the truth. Now, I found it to be sadly true among many Christians, both in Sunday churches and Messianic Christians. So sad that many of us can't handle the truth. Many of us hold on to wives' tales that are fostered by so-called scholars in the Christian church or so-called Orthodox rabbis who make things up that the Bible does not say. Many of us hold on to traditions and we cannot face the truth. Coming to grips with the truth of history, the truth of archaeology, the truth of the Bible will enhance and expand your walk with the Lord. And I, I, as for me, my passion for my walk with the Lord has increased so much by facing truth that in some cases has been very uncomfortable. Now we must be clear, the Bible never says, the Bible never says Pharaoh was drowned. Never says that Pharaoh was dumped like the Message Bible or swept in like the NIV. Never says that Pharaoh was killed with his army. Now with regards to the Bible, it really says he, he really wasn't ki killed. If we read carefully, Exodus 15 verses 4 and 5. And we cannot make the Bible say something that it doesn't say. And really, there's no need for Pharaoh to die. He's now totally powerless. Pharaoh can't do anything. He's been brushed off. He's, he's nowhere, man. This, he's nothing. Amenhotep II as king for the last 26 years of his life after the Exodus... He never fought any major battles. Why? He had no army. He had to go back and try to raise an army after his entire army was massacred. I wanted to thank Dr. Doug Petrovich. This guy is just an amazing Egyptologist, an amazing scholar, 
He's an expert in Hebrew. He's an expert in Egyptian hieroglyphics. I link you to an article that relates to historicity of Exodus and addresses this issue in, in depth. Did Pharaoh die with his army? So it's quite amazing. You, you've got to read Petrovich's article. I, I would recommend that you go to the website, www.lightofmenorah.org, and then you'll find that link, get it, and print it, and save it, because it's going to be a key reference, and you'll come back to it again and again. All this, you guys, shows that the Bible and archaeology, history, agree again and again. You may not like it, but we need to seek the truth, even if it erases our false traditions, traditions that are not based upon fact or history, and actually make the Bible a joke. In verse 2, there's another concept we need to take a look at it. Take a look at. Right there at the end of verse 2, it says, My father is God, and I will extol him. He'd say, Well, what? No way. That's a Christian concept. That's only in the Lord's Prayer. Sorry. God, our Father, or God being our Father, you guys, is a totally Jewish concept. That's why the Lord's Prayer is totally a Jewish prayer. For your reference, take a look at Deuteronomy 32, verse 6, or Deuteronomy 32, verse 18. That's the Song of Moses. It talks about God our Father. Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 4, or verse 19 of Jeremiah 3. Now this makes sense. It makes sense that God is our Father, and this comes from Israel. It comes from the Jewish people. Why? Back in Exodus chapter 4, specifically in verse 22, God tells Moses, I want you to go to Pharaoh, and I want you to tell Pharaoh this, that Israel is my firstborn son. Now, we dealt with that in detail. Israel, my firstborn son. Well, if Israel is God's firstborn son, then who's God? The father of Israel. It comes For us, it comes back to this again, you guys. We're grafted in. We're joint heirs. This is in Romans 11, verse 17. We've been adopted by God as his sons and daughters. God is our father. And for us Gentiles, and even for Jews, as you come to Jesus, that we have become truly God's people through the blood of Jesus. I remember I took a uh, class in my master's degree program. It was in Israel through Jerusalem University College in Jerusalem. And we had a fairly large class, 40, 50 of us. This was several years ago. And we were all over Israel. This was uh, a three-week intense class on the geography of Israel, geography of the Bible. 
And one day our class was walking in the old city of Jerusalem, and we stopped at the Jewish quarter, and we stopped at a gift shop. And the gift shop, it's still there today, is called Show, um, let me see if I can pronounce it correctly, uh, Shorashim, Shorashim, and that's Hebrew for roots. Now, one of the co-owners is a guy by the name of Rabbi Moshe Kapinski. This, oh, what a guy. Oh, super friendly. Uh, he loves Christians. He doesn't believe that Jesus is Messiah. He is a strict, devout Jew. This guy knows the Bible, and he knows the New Testament backwards and forwards. This was amazing. He loves to help us, Christians, and his fellow Jews return return to our roots. Shorashim. So outside the shop, we gathered around him and had a great time talking and sharing and questioning. It was just amazing. Rabbi Kompinski then said something that blew me away. He asked us if we ever heard this. For by grace you have been saved, by faith, and that not of yourselves. And it's like, uh, hello, of course we did. That's Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. And he went on, he started teaching us this. Then he said, in Judaism, Jews believe that, number one, the law doesn't save them. Number two, that they have been saved by grace and by grace alone. And Rabbi Kompitsky is saying, it's not a Christian concept. He said, why should we be surprised? Paul was a Jew, a great scholar and student of Gamaliel, an, arm, arm, an ardent Talmud of Yeshua, disciple of Jesus. They're all devout Jews. And as Kompinski said, Yeshua was a great rabbi, a great Torah scholar. <laughs> wow. This was so awesome. Then he taught us the word chesed. Chesed. Strong's number is H2617. And he said, remember, Hebrew words are conceptual in meaning. So you get a picture that normally helps you understand how to use the word. So chesed comes from the word kasad, which the Strong's number is H2616, and from kasad we get the idea of the picture. And again, we go to Gesenius's Hebrew lexicon, and kasad talks about the eager and ardent desire or zeal for ones following you. So it's the eager and ardent desire or zeal of a leader for those who are following him or her. Now this ardent desire or zeal for the ones following you, this translates into such words as loving kindness, mercy, pity, or favoring someone that follows you even though they don't earn it. That's called grace. That is just amazing. This first appears in Genesis chapter 19. Remember Lot escapes Sodom and Gomorrah? And you can go read it. Lot escapes. And he basically says that by your loving kindness, by your chesed, O God, that I have been saved. By his grace. We can read it that way. Lot didn't do anything to deserve to be rescued except 
What did he do? He happened to be Abraham's nephew. That was it. Another one is check out Psalm 6 and go to verse 4. And we read, Return, O Lord, rescue my soul. Save me because of your loving kindness. Save me because of your chesed. But chesed can be a Hebrew word that means grace. So we can reread this as, Return, O Lord, and rescue my soul. Save me because of your grace. That's Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. Or we can go to verse 5, or, or, or Psalm 5, verse 7. But as for me, by your abundant loving kindness, I will enter your house. At your holy temple, I will bow in reverence for you. And again, that we can reread that as, but as for me, by your abundant grace, I will enter your house. This reminds me of a statement in the book of Hebrews. I can't remember exactly what chapter, but because of the blood of Jesus, because of God's grace and his love for us and his great gift of his grace of the cross of Christ, it's by his blood we're able to enter the Holy of Holies. This is related to the verse 7 here in Psalm 5. By your grace we're able to enter your house. God's grace, his chesed. Just by the way, there is another word in Hebrew that also means grace, and it's the word chen. We won't deal with that. We're just dealing with chesed right now. Now, later on in Exodus, and you can look this up if you want, God says that the Ten Commandments are his covenant. That That's a quote directly from Exodus back in the 30s someplace. You can look that up. The Ten Commandments are his covenant. And guess what we find in his covenant? Grace. So in Exodus 20, verse 6, we read, But showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. Showing grace to thousands. One of my favorites is Psalm 100. And you go to Psalm 100, and you go to verse 5, and it talks about his loving kindness is everlasting. In Hebrew, chesdo haholam. Remember, chesed means loving kindness, long-suffering, mercy, pity, grace. And then when you put an O at the end, that means his chesed, his grace, his mercy. Haholam, that means from beginning to end, for all time. So you can read Psalm 100, verse 5, this way. This is his grace from the beginning to the end. And we say, yes, this makes sense, because God himself is the first and the last. He's the beginning and the end. And we shouldn't be surprised. Malachi 3.6 says, God is the same. He doesn't change. Psalm 119, verse 89 his word is settled in heaven. Heavens? Or, or settled in the heavens. The Hebrew word there for heavens is shamaim, which also can be used for the universe. And settled, the Hebrew word is to establish, to be made firm. So we can read Psalm 119, verse 89, in this alternative equivalent way. His word has been established in the universe. Now, we all agree Jesus is God, Jesus is Lord. 
And now we're reading here in Exodus 15, verse 13. So returning back to the Song of the Sea in verse 13, it says, In your loving kindness you have led the people whom you have redeemed. In your strength you have guided them to your holy habitation. The Hebrews are led by God's grace. They did nothing to deserve it. Nothing. Way back in Exodus chapter 2, we remember when I went and taught about, talk about the fact that the Bible shows clearly that the Hebrews probably assimilated into the Egyptian culture and forgot the God and forgot the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob and the God of Israel. Because when they cried out, they cried out to no one. But God heard them. Why? Because he had to keep his promise to Abraham, and these were the children of Abraham. It's like Lot. The only reason he was saved is that he was the nephew of Abraham. Why was Israel saved? Because they're the descendants of Abraham. And God is going to keep his promise. This is amazing. But the ultimate expression of his chesed, the ultimate expression of God's grace, the ultimate expression of his ardent desire for us who follow him, we follow him as our loving shepherd, is the cross of Christ. It's the cure for our corruption for both Jew and Gentile. It's the final amazing act of God's grace for us, his chesed. So when I take a look at the statements that Moshe Kapinski taught us, right outside the shop, Shorashim, it made a lot of sense. And Paul's a Jew. He's, reading, he's writing Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 10. Of course we've been saved by grace. So again, how amazing it is to learn that even Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 comes from Shosharim, the roots, the Jewish roots of our faith. I'll see you in the next lesson. Shalom. Shalom.